This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com fool and enter promo code fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's August 15th and a Monday, so we're covering the financial sector today. I'm Christine Hargis, filling in for your normal host, Gabby LaPera. Longtime listeners will remember that I actually used to host this show rather than my current Wednesday healthcare show, so this is kind of a throwback. I've got financials contributor Jay Jenkins calling into Full HQ in Alexandria, Virginia. How's it going, Jay? Hey, happy to be here. Welcome to the show. All right, listeners, think back on your weekend, specifically the financial transactions that you made. I can almost guarantee that you directly interacted with one of the services that we're going to cover today. If you split a bill with friends via Venmo, or used your card in a farmer's market via Square, or maybe you used near-field technology at the supermarket to pay from your iPhone, you'd be on the frontier of the payment processing landscape, which is changing every day. Today, we're going to dig in a little bit to the companies powering this space and some of the ways that you can invest in it. Jay, where shall we start? Well, I think the easiest way to kind of understand the, the bigger picture and then you know from that infer the trends and where we're going next is to start with the two gorillas in the industry, the established players, Visa and MasterCard. Uh, compared to all the other space, these two are just absolutely dominant and dwarf you know, virtually the entire industry. They're so dominant. Uh, I, I went and pulled some numbers to give some context to this. Uh, so we've right now the world population is what seven, maybe eight, eight billion or nine billion, something like that. Uh, currently, there are over two point five billion Visa cards in circulation around the world today, and there are about two point three billion more Mastercard branded branded cards in circulation around the world today. So when you think about that, in the developed world, in the emerging markets, in you know third world countries all over the world, all these people. Almost everyone has a Visa or a MasterCard. It's staggering, the size and the scale. That is pretty incredible. And is that number of people that just have the card or how many cards are in circulation? Because you could have more than one card. Absolutely. That's, that's true. And that's a very good point. That's the number of total cards in circulation. Uh, going a step further, we can also they also report their total gross dollars that come across their networks uh, each, each quarter. And those numbers are just as staggering. So while, yeah, you know, I you know, may have a MasterCard and a Visa, so maybe a little bit of a double count there. Uh, in terms of like the global economy, uh, these numbers are still just mind-blowing. Uh, $1.35 trillion in payment uh, volume went across Visa's network in the second quarter alone. It's t- that's actually Visa's third quarter, but the, the quarter ended June 30th. Uh, on the MasterCard network, $1.23 trillion, which is an 11% growth rate year over year. It, it's just massive. It's, it's hard to even conceptualize what, what that looks like practically. you know. That is pretty incredible. So, looking at the companies that make all those transactions happen, how do they make their money? Sure, that's a great question. And it's a little bit uh, of a misconception, I think, in the, the general public. Visa and MasterCard are not banks, they don't actually make loans. Uh, their business is much more like, uh, I think about it like a highway toll collector. So, Visa and MasterCard went out years ago and built this digital highway. And whenever you swipe your card or uh, you buy your uh, online with a Visa or MasterCard, that, that transaction has to go across the highway built by Visa or MasterCard to connect you and the merchant and your bank and the merchant's bank uh, and a lot of intermediary stuff too that's not, not worth getting into. But, but fundamentally, that's all they're doing is their infrastructure that's connecting us that allows the payments to happen 
you know, from the card swipe at the grocery store or with Square or buying on Amazon online. They're sort of the, the action behind your transaction. Uh, and then every time they do that, every time your transaction goes across their highway, uh, you know, their digital infrastructure, they just collect a small fee. Uh, and now when you do $1.35 trillion in payments in a quarter, those small fees add up you know, very, very quickly. Yeah, for sure. And a bunch of these companies also have partnerships with other companies. I know we heard a ton about the the Costco deal with with Visa. Um, that was huge, and that actually kind of leads us into a little bit the next uh, company that we want to talk about, which was American Express, which lost its relationship with Costco uh, fairly recently. What was that? Maybe a year ago, a little more. Yeah, they announced it about a year ago, and the actual transaction or the actual transition, I should say, uh, was just a few months ago. Indeed. So, American Express is kind of an interesting one to contrast with Visa and MasterCard because they go beyond just this highway toll booth collector model. Absolutely. And that's a, the, the Citigroup, uh, Visa, and Amex comparison is absolutely fantastic to illustrate the differences in these two companies. So, American Express believes one of their fundamental competitive advantages is that they, they call it a closed loop ecosystem, meaning you swipe your American Express card. That transaction happens on an American Express built, you know, digital highway. So they're completely in control there. And then the actual credit card is American Express debt. So they're actually kind of like the bank. They actually own the debt. They're funding the transaction if you use a credit card. And that compares to Visa again. Visa doesn't make loans. Visa's not in that business. So when Costco decided to Costco and Amex decided to part ways, Costco couldn't just go to Visa. They also had to go find a bank. And that bank, you know, turns out uh, ended up being Citigroup. So they essentially replaced one vendor, American Express, which did both, both functions, and now they're replacing it with two vendors because Visa doesn't have that lending function uh, that American Express is. And that distinction is important because, uh, first of all, it changes the way they make money. Right? They make money on the transaction fees, which is their primary uh, driver of income at American Express, but they also make money on loans. So they collect interest, uh, they have interest expenses, just, just like a traditional bank, a community bank would do. Uh, if they were in the you know consumer debt or credit card market, and so even though they might be smaller on the actual network side when you compare American Express to your Mastercard or your Visa, they also have this bank business. That's that's exactly correct. Uh, American Express has 108 million dollar. I'm sorry, excuse me, 108 million cards in circulation, which you know again you compare that to the uh, 2.5 billion Visa cards. You know that's that's a drop in the bucket. But they're still able to generate a lot of revenue from those transaction fees. In the second quarter, they generated $6.8 billion in non-interest income. Uh, and then additionally, they generated $1.8 billion in net interest income. So they have the transaction business uh, that's much smaller. You know, it's not as uh, it's not quite the blanket like Visa or MasterCard is, but it's supplemented with this lending business, which, you know, $1.8 billion in net interest uh, income is that's substantial. That's a lot of money. So, is American Express the only company out there playing both sides of this? No, actually, as as we kind of get deeper into the industry, you'll find that outside of Visa and Mastercard, everyone sort of has their hand in different pots. Uh, Discover Financial is the the closest natural comparison with American Express. Fundamentally, they do the same thing. Uh, they have a payment network. Uh, there's the Discover network, uh, Diners Club. They have a couple of different other brands around the world in different you know geographies. Uh, and they collect payment uh, money on each transaction that goes through, just like we've already described. And they also have uh, a banking subsidiary that makes loans. Uh, Discover actually made mortgage loans up until last year. This is the first year that they haven't uh, they sold off their their mortgage book. So that's kind of an interesting ploy too. They weren't just payments; they were full on into the whole 
uh, consumer debt side of things as well. That is interesting. I, I didn't see that. One thing that I did see recently when I was reading about Discover is that gas prices are actually lowering card spending. And I'm sure this is a trend that is happening for all of these, these companies that we've talked about. But Discover noted that they had 4% credit sales growth in the first quarter, and it would have been closer to 5% if gas sales and the leap year were thrown out. That's so interesting. You get these huge companies with such scale. It's amazing what one extra day and a quarter can do to their, you know, year-over-year -year numbers. It's going to be a little bit misleading. And then you throw in something macro like, you know, gas prices. Um, it, 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 analyzing these companies is, is it's simplistic in that they're all sort of similar, and you can kind of get the business model. But then the more you dive in, these little nuanced factors can really throw you off if you're not paying close attention. Yeah, and that those kind of little things will make or break your analysis of the company. So we want to move on from some of these more traditional established players and talk about some of the ways that the space is being disruptive. But first, this episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Casper. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly onto you, the consumer. Casper's mattress is an obsessively engineered mattress that's a very fair price point. You can buy it easily online, and it's completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and painless returns with a 100-day period in which you can return it. So, you don't have to lie down in a showroom to make sure that you like the mattress. You can get a Casper Twin mattress for $500 or a king-size mattress for $950. And if you compare that to industry averages, that is an outstanding price point. And you can save an additional $50 towards mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash fool and then enter the promo code fool. Again, that's casper.com slash fool and the promo code is fool. Should be fairly easy to remember. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, Jay, back to your regularly scheduled programming. What's next in this industry? What are some of the movers and shakers changing things? Sure, and, and this I think is where it starts to get a little bit confusing uh, for folks who don't don't follow this on a pretty regular basis. A basis because it has it's kind of gotten a little bit murky. There's a lot of new players. People are doing different things. The internet and smartphones have really changed the way uh, consumers interact with merchants. Whether you're buying from you know an e-commerce site or like you mentioned a farmer's market with your debit or credit card, these are things that 20 years ago didn't exist, and in some cases, even five years ago, didn't really exist. So it's, it's changing pretty rapidly. Especially um, on the, the broad scale that they exist on now. I mean, I use, I use an app, Venmo, to pay my rent. Absolutely. You know, I mean, Venmo is a perfect transition, too, because I think PayPal is the company that really started this massive shift uh, in the payments business. Uh, to me, PayPal was the one company that made doing business on the internet easy. And that's where they started. You know, eventually they were bought by eBay, and then last year were spun back off into another, uh, you know, back separately into their own uh, distinct company. But over the last, say, 15-ish years, it's, PayPal was the company that allowed entrepreneurs or small businesses or even established companies. They made it really easy to sell their products online. And as we know today, I mean, everyone shops online. Yep, it's huge. And PayPal still is the heavyweight here. They have 184 million active users and 14.5 million merchants. They generated $9.2 billion in revenue in 2015. And as you alluded to, they actually own Venmo. They acquired Venmo via the acquisition of Braintree for $800 million back in 2013. And Venmo is a very quickly up and coming player in this market. Just in this past January of 2016, they had their first $1 billion transaction month. They were the third most downloaded app last year. And this could certainly change the game going forward. 
Absolutely. If you're 35, give or take years old or younger, you almost certainly have Venmo. I mean, it's ubiquitous at this point for that, I guess, millennial generation. Uh, and it's an interesting kind of conundrum for PayPal. I mean, they have this app that is absolutely on fire, but as of right now, they're losing money on it every single day. So Venmo, all it functionally does is it allows you to uh, transfer money from one person to another directly. It's really fast. It connects to your bank account. Um, the transfer is basically instantaneous, and then you just have to go through the normal, say, day or two that, that it takes the banks to process the deposit after the fact. So at this point, that's completely free to consumers. So anytime, you know, if you transfer with a credit card or a debit card, Visa or MasterCard, in most cases, are going to charge a small fee that PayPal is right now footing. A couple percentage points, not a lot, but with a, with a product that's growing this rapidly and this many users, it adds up you know, to millions and millions of dollars a quarter. So the big question is, can PayPal somehow monetize Venmo to kind of capture this millennial mobile movement that's happening without doing so in a way that turns off users and stifles the growth rate? Yeah, there are a couple of points that I want to make on that. So they do make some money by allowing merchants to accept Venmo as a payment option. This just started on July twenty seventh right. with eleven merchants, and so the merchants are charged a small fee here. But really, the heart of their business is peer to peer. It's you and I go out to dinner and we want to split the bill, but neither of us carry cash because who carries cash nowadays? And so I'm going to send you my half via Venmo. That's really the heart of it. And the thing about that is. It's a competitive space. There are other players out there trying to do the same thing. And so, if Venmo all of a sudden wanted to charge a fee, or you had to pay to download the app, or there was a membership, I think they would lose a lot of their customers. Exactly. It's, it's kind of a land grab right now. Like you saw, you know, ten years ago, and even still to this day, to a degree, with Amazon, just cutting prices, operating without you know any profit intentionally, just just land grabbing. We have to be the number one seller on the internet. We have to be ubiquitous. You know, we have to go from being tissue paper to being Kleenex. And then once you get to that point, you know you can have options and you can you can try different things. Um, and to your point, the first thing they're trying is you know opening up on the business side where they can charge businesses to accept uh, Venmo, much in the same way that uh, Square, which I'm sure we'll talk about probably next, does in the same way that to a degree Mastercard and Visa do as well. It's kind of a transaction revenue model, uh, and I and, you know, and I think that makes sense. And I think PayPal's already really good at transaction revenue. Uh, something like 88 or, or 90 percent of their total revenue comes from transactions. Uh, it just happens that, that transactions, those transactions today are e-commerce as opposed to peer-to-peer or smartphone-based, um, not necessarily as formalized as, as you know, like an e, e-store, uh, essentially. Right. So you mentioned Square. Tell me a little bit more about that. So Square, I think, is, is one of the more interesting of the, the current payment processing uh, companies. Square is very young. Uh, they're not profitable yet, uh, but they're growing very, very quickly. Um, Square came to fame overnight, it seems, from, uh, so I like to think about Square, what PayPal did for e-commerce, Square has kind of done for physical but mobile business, farmers markets, food trucks, uh, you know, small small businesses that want to go out into the community to find their customers, they can get on Square, order the small dongle that connects to a smartphone, and just like that, in a day, they can accept credit card payments on the go. Um, and it's, we take it for granted today, but just a few years ago, that was a big problem. That was going to the ATM and paying you know, 2 or $4 for an ATM fee to get cash to then go back to buy lunch. Today, we don't have that problem. Today, everyone can accept cards, and, and Square is the driving force behind that, uh, that change. 
It's interesting to me that that charge that you used to pay on an ATM to get out cash is now actually being passed on to the seller because Square will charge the seller 2.75% of the transaction in order to facilitate it. That's right. And it's the same thing. That's fundamentally the same business that Visa and MasterCard do as well. Square is just sort of another layer on that information, you know, highway. Um, Square doesn't have, you know, necessarily the infrastructure that Visa certainly not that Visa and MasterCard do. So they're they're just another entry point to get onto that Visa, Mastercard, or, or American Express or Discover Highway. So by that two point seven percent, some of that goes to maybe Visa, maybe Mastercard. Square keeps some amount of it. Banks, other other intermediaries get a little cut of it. Um, but my point of saying all this is that from the merchant's perspective, it might be slightly more expensive, but it might not also. So it's really not a huge change on the merchant side either from what they were doing, accepting you know the credit cards the way they have you know since the eighties. Yeah, that's very true. One other detail to the Square story that I want to bring up. So the way that it actually works with the little thing that connects to your phone is that it plugs into the headphone jack. So there are these rumors going on that Apple is planning on getting rid of their headphone jack in the next iPhone, which that could potentially be problematic for Square. But Square is already trying to react to this, and so they used to give out that little piece of hardware for free, but now they have a new near-field communication technology contactless. Uh, device that can also do the the chip card reading. Now that all the credit cards are starting to have those little chips, and that's actually going to be forty nine dollars for a, a seller to actually buy one of these new devices. Right, and that, you know that sounds like a lot, you, you know, versus free. Uh, but compared to what they would pay for a traditional you know card uh, machine in the past, that's that's really not too bad of an expense. It's going to be interesting to see how they respond to that. You know, has the behavior changed such that the expectation is that it should be free? Can they actually convince people uh, to go that route? Yeah, it's just um, an interesting point on the Square business model, where they're not looking to make money on that hardware. Really, they're looking to have it be as accessible as possible, so that people are in their ecosystem and they're making money on the actual transactions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one, I, you're totally right. And they're thinking outside the box in a lot of ways too. Square is a technology company first that just happens, I think, to be in the financial technology space. Right? It was started by the founder of Twitter. So they come from a background that's not sort of burdened by uh, the conventions of the financial establishment, so to speak. So to me, what that means, it allows, it allows them to think a little bit differently about what services they could provide or necessarily should provide. Uh, one big, big item they talk about a lot is, is data mining through all of their transaction data and really working and using advanced, you know, kind of computer algorithmic ways to find how people are spending, how merchants are using the service, can we offer them, say, working capital loans that can increase uh, their, the efficiency of their balance sheet and income statement, maybe drive sales higher? Uh, can we offer consulting services uh, to come in and say, hey, if we think, we think based on your data, you might be a good fit for this or that, that could help your business in different ways. Um, they're kind of looking at the whole space as a blank canvas, uh, and then they're using what they're learning every day as they operate and as they grow to kind of think of new, unique, and potentially game-changing ways of doing business and payments. They're really on the cutting edge. That is super interesting. So, as an investor looking at this space, we've mentioned a bunch of companies today. Can we directly compare them? How how does one go about valuing them and determining what could be the best buy? Well, it's really hard because you have established companies that are growing pretty rapidly, but they're not growing like a startup would, you know, coming out of Silicon Valley. And then on the completely other end of the spectrum, we have a startup coming out of Silicon Valley that's growing at these astronomical rates. So the way investors approach these are going to have to be pretty different, right? So on the one end, you have Visa, Mastercard, 
both companies, great returns on equity, growing solidly, huge, major competitive advantage. And they're valued at, say, somewhere around $30 price to earnings uh, right now. I think it's like 28 and maybe 32 as we record this. Uh, and then on the other side, you have Square, which is not profitable, growing really, really quickly. Uh, how do you value that? You know, I'm not a venture capitalist. That's not really my forte. Uh, I would have a very hard time valuing Square and understanding uh, where it could be in a year or in five years or in 10 years. And then somewhere, somewhere in the middle, you have Amex and Discover, which are kind of like Visa and MasterCard, but they're also kind of like traditional banks. So they have major regulatory hurdles. They have capital requirements. Uh, they have to go through the Federal Reserve's CCAR stress tests. Um, all this extra burden that comes with you know being a lender, being a consumer lender. So Amex and Discover trade a little bit, you know, maybe 10, 11, 12 times price to earnings uh, versus you know the high flying valuations you get for Visa or Mastercard. So it's kind of a trade off. What do you understand? Uh, do you even like, if you don't invest in banks in general, that could be a pretty big turnoff for Discover or American Express. Uh, but if you like the stability of having a loan book that's going to generate net uh, net interest income quarter after quarter, um, it could be seen as a value, only paying ten times earnings. Right, or if you want exposure to the banking industry without buying a bank. Sure, absolutely, and you you get the benefits of the of the loans. Uh, and you had, and some would argue that having some regulatory oversight is, is beneficial because it kind of opens up the books in a way for investors that you wouldn't otherwise see. And you have this amazing non-interest income coming in that's just considerably higher than a regional bank is going to be able to produce, or um, you know, certainly a community bank who generally won't mess with the credit card side of things. Right. Great. Thank you so much for your thoughts today, Jay. It's been fun reliving my days as the host of Industry Focused Financials. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Jay Jenkins, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!